It's great that we love each other so much, right? We get to hang out and talk with each other. And, but there's more to do. We got plenty to do today. So I'm going to need you to find your seat so we can, so we can get to it, right? We got stuff to do, people to see, places to be. All right, man, I'm so excited to be up here with you guys this morning. Jeff is out today and just asked me uh, to get up and, and preach our last Sunday before the Certainty Conference starts, which is fun. Um, I love the Certainty Conference, man. It's, it's so great. We've only, um, we've only been doing Certainty Conference the last couple of years, but we've always done a spring Bible conference at our church, you know, just digging deep into the Bible doctrinally and seeing some things that God would have for us to see, right? Because 2 Timothy 2.15 tells us that we need to be students of the word and that we need to seek to rightly divide it and to study to show ourselves approved. So that's the entire point of the Certainty Conference is so that we can just show ourselves faithful of stewards of God's word and parsing it correctly and dividing it correctly so that we can know what God has to say to us. So frequently what we'll do is we'll take something um, that might be a little deeper than we would necessarily study on a Sunday morning and, and just take an entire, well, almost an entire week to just look at one subject. And this year we're looking at something called dispensationalism. Yeah, that's, that sounds pretty fun, right? It, it is, though. It is, though. It's, it's actually really foundational to how you rightly divide the word because there are natural divisions in the Bible. And if you rightly divide the word as the word says, then you'll come away with the right conclusions about what God has to say to man. So it's imperative that we know how to rightly divide the word, and that's why we're taking time to do that. But this morning, before we... Before we get to Certainty Conference in a week and we dive into some, some really maybe deeper things, I, I really would just like to take a second this Sunday to talk about something very simple, something that's not so hard to understand, so simple that it's actually rather easy to grasp. And, and today, I'd like to make sure that before we get to next week and start looking at some really fun, awesome things, I'd like to make sure that we just have a firm grasp on the gospel. Does that sound like fun? You guys down with that? I, I know that most of you guys in here, you know the gospel, and man, you've been regenerated in Christ, and you have new life, and that's awesome. But man, I would really just like to take a second to look at the simplicity of the gospel and make sure that we all in here grasp the gospel correctly and firmly. But here's the thing, because the gospel, it is, it really is so, so simple, which is what makes it really the most amazing good news that you could ever find in the entire earth, because it is so simple, and we'll see that in a second. It's not complex, it's not intricate, it's not hard to comprehend, but rather it's simple and it's easy to understand. But therein lies the danger. When you have something so simple, so easy to understand, it provides the opportunity for an enemy to come in and take the non-complicated uh, truth and to make it complicated. And our enemy tends to do that through things like pride and intellect and even good intentions. We can take something as simple as the gospel and we can twist it up and make it more confusing than what it is. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he knew about that and he stressed it to the church in Corinth when in 2 Corinthians 11, he said in verse three, but I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. See, the gospel of Christ is simple, y'all. It's easy to grasp. Anyone can understand it, and that's what makes the message such good news. That's what the gospel, that's what gospel means. It means good news. But even Paul said, listen, it's so simple, but I fear that the enemy will come, and through his subtlety, he'll ruin that for you, and he'll beguile you. 
Because what did he do to Eve? He took the simple commands of God and he added to them. And he rested the scripture. He rested what God said. He turned it inside out. He added it to it. He added something else to it that God didn't intend to be there. And because of that, we are where we are right now. Because of a subtle enemy attack on something such as simple as a command, as the words of God, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and it passed to every man. So we want to make sure that we understand the simplicity that is in Christ, because verse 4 goes on to say, For if he that cometh preacheth, uh, preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit which ye have not received, or another gospel which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. He says, listen, if anyone comes preaching or teaching anything other than the simplistic gospel that is in Christ Jesus, that you know, that you've known from your youth, it's a lie. It's not the truth. Don't listen to it because he's trying, the enemy's trying to infiltrate the simplicity that is Christ and make it not make sense. That's what he's telling us. And Paul gives us the gospel clearly in the Bible. If you, if, uh, I'm sure most of you have memorized or, or at least know of Romans Road. If you ever just wanted a one, two, three verse summary of the gospel, it's in 1 Corinthians 15. And if we go down to verse three, he says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, isn't it? That Christ died for our sins According to the scriptures, by the way, they prophesied it thousands of years before it happened. He died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day, conquering death and hell, and he now has the keys to death and hell. That's the gospel. That's it. There's no other way that a man must be saved but then by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's Jesus, that's it. That might not be open-minded, but it's truth. That might not be tolerant, but it's the Bible. It's God's word. There's no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. John 14, 6. The Lord says, I am the way. Not a way. Not one of the ways. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. I know that's not politically correct today, but listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, you don't know the gospel. And that's what it's all about. That's the gospel, guys. Man, that's, I, I think we should just go home. I, I think that's good enough, right? That's, man, but it's so simple that it can be so profound at the same time, and it, and it gives the opportunity for the, for the enemy or someone to come in and twist that simple truth so that brings us to what I'd like to take a look at this morning, a verse that's so simple that I'm sure that many of you have memorized it since you were a kid. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And can I just ask you today, if you've seen this verse, if you've read it a thousand times, if you know it by heart, can I, can I just ask you to just look at this verse, look at this passage with, with new eyes this morning, to, to maybe with open ears and an open heart, see what God has to say to each and every one of us through Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Let's read it before we dig in. It says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. See, this passage of Scripture, it's very, very 
critical to the truth of the gospel because it addresses what I believe to be one of the biggest, if not the biggest, deviation from the gospel in the world, and that's the issue of work salvation. That might possibly be the biggest deviation from the true gospel. Oh man, I, I want to keep going, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So before we get there, though, let's break this down in order. Let's just start in verse 8. I know it's, it's not often that we take a verse that seems so cliche, if I can say that, so, so common. Everybody knows John 3.16. Everyone knows Ephesians 2.8 and 9. But man, I just want to take this and let's just rip it apart and let's look at every single word and see what does God mean by the gospel. Let's get a firm grasp on the gospel this morning, all right? So let's look at verse 8, if you will. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And let's stop right there before we go any further because in those eight words, we see the process of salvation. The process of salvation. And what God tells us is that the process of salvation is by grace through faith. That's incredibly simple, but it's also profound at the same time. I'm sure most of us have heard that at one point or another. I'm sure a lot of us in here know that and have personally received that and do have a new life with Christ. But really, let's just get to the nitty-gritty. What, what is grace? Salvation is by grace through faith. What, what is grace? Now, I mean, if you've been in church any length of time, I'm sure even our, even our children could say something that sounds really, really churchy, like, grace is unmerited favor. That is absolutely correct. Good job. What does that mean? I, I don't know. Um, you could say something as simple as receiving something we don't deserve. Absolutely. But, but what, biblically, does that actually mean? And so if we go in the Bible to the first place that grace is ever mentioned, I think that God will shed some light, some truth on what he is going to define grace as throughout the rest of the Bible. It's a very typical principle of Bible study, and it definitely applies here. So let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is where we see the first mention of the word grace in your Bible. I'm going to start reading in verse 5 if you'll follow along with me. And it, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a lot of absolutes in that sentence. Every imagination was only evil. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So all of creation, man included, has corrupted itself on the earth at this point. Six chapters into the book, man. It's all ruined. It's all been tanked. Look at verse 8. God's ready to judge righteously, might I add. Verse 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Six chapters into the book, not very long into the whole story that God is writing, that is the history of man and what he is going to do through us, it's been completely corrupted by sin. And every heart of every man the thoughts are only evil continually. And God, he has to judge. It's, it's been too widespread. The sin is too rampant. The corruption is too, it's, it's just ruined everything. But grace, but grace. Man, that is the phrase that regenerates. That is the phrase that changes lives. But grace. See, all of mankind deserved judgment, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So let me ask you this, was Noah the only person on the earth that had never sinned? No, there's no way. Not if you believe what the Bible says in Romans 3, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All. 
There's none that do righteous. No, not one. Noah deserved condemnation just like everyone else. Was he the only one who didn't deserve judgment? Absolutely not. If you believe the Bible, Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. So Noah deserved judgment just like everyone else, even if he was better than everyone else, because he was a just man, the Bible says. He was a good man, but he was still imperfect. He had a broken image of God, and he was separated by God, or from God by his sin, but grace. So what we, if I'm just going to define grace for you, in the light of Genesis 6 in the Bible, grace is simply receiving reward despite deserving condemnation. That's all it is. You deserve judgment, you deserve condemnation, but you receive grace anyway, you receive reward. That doesn't make any sense. But it's grace, it's God. That's what he does. God offers grace simply because he is love. There's no other explanation, there's no other way to justify why he would extend grace to anybody other than the fact that he, in and of himself, his being, he is love. He is, he doesn't just demonstrate love, he doesn't just uh, have the attribute of love, he is love, and because he is love, he makes a way for us. So this grace is what he offers, not just to Noah, that's the first time it was used, but to every person who deserves condemnation. Spoiler alert, that's all of us. We all deserve condemnation, but despite deserving condemnation, we can receive reward. And this grace that God gives, it's only attainable, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 says, through faith. It is God's grace alone that saves, but faith alone can attain that. So letter B, let's look at faith. And again, we're going to just look at the Bible and see what, I mean, you can make any attempt at defining faith on your own, but let's just see what God has to say. The definition of faith in the Bible is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. God says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. See, it's, faith is the, the substance of what we hope for, and it's the evidence of what you can't see. So basically, it's the opposite of seeing as believing, right? Seeing as believing is man's own mantra. God's mantra is believe what you can't see. <laughs> that's faith. And that's the only way to obtain this grace that God offers, this reward that we don't deserve, because faith is it's believing with such conviction that God is who he says he is that we act upon it. Right? That's what faith is. It's not just mental assent to something. It's not just verbal assent to something that it's true. It's believing with such conviction that what God says about himself is true, that we act upon it. That's faith. It's the vehicle. It's, it's the mode of salvation. Grace alone can give salvation, but through faith alone can we attain it. That's what the Bible tells us. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if, if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. See, because here's the thing, if salvation, if faith was just a mouth thing, if it was just a verbal or even an intellectual thing, then verbal assent to the existence of God would gain you eternal life along with all the devils. Because <laughs> you know the demons believe in God too, right? They verbally would assent to the existence of God. They ain't going to heaven any day soon. 
It's more than just intellectually knowing. It's, it's acting upon such conviction that God is who he says he is that you act on it and you accept and you trust with all of your heart and with all of your life that God is who he says he is. And he provides us grace despite deserving condemnation. See, faith is a heart thing. It's more than just logic. Sure, logic can lead you to God. God provides logic all around us. Look outside and look up at the clouds. Look at, look at the trees. He gives us his general re- revelation of his existence through nature. You can see it everywhere. It's logical. Everything was created in such a specific way that it only makes sense that God created it. It only makes sense, but that alone, that mental ascent will not save you. Going to church your whole life and believing that God exists will not save you. It's by his grace through faith. It's faith in what God has done for us that we don't deserve. It's what Romans 10, 10 says that the heart believes. That's how we're saved. Faith is what brings us to God and grace is what actually saves us, right? So faith in what God says is what brings us to God and then grace is what actually saves us. All right, let's go back. Let's go back to Ephesians 2, 8. So he said, for by grace are you saved through faith Then it goes on to say, And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So what I want to take a look at next is we just saw the the gift and what grace is, but next I want to see the problem with works prior to salvation. The problem with works prior to salvation. And And the reason this is so critical and so important is because this works thing it's at the heart of every religious group other than Christianity. I don't care where it is. Take any other world religion. At the heart of it is works salvation. You have to do something. You have to follow a leader's rules. You have to maintain a moral code of conduct to be saved. That's every other religion except for biblical, true biblical Christianity. And that's a big problem. So if we don't understand this simplicity of the gospel, we can easily rest it so that we rely in and we have faith in our own works to save us. And that will send many, many people to hell because that alone can't save us because it's not of works lest any man should boast. Biblical Christianity is the only one that'll tell you there's only one way, and that's labeled intolerant. It's the only one that'll tell you that you can't do anything to gain eternal life, and that's labeled lazy by a lot. It's the only one that says your works are as filthy rags even. It takes it another step further. Not only can you not do anything to get to God, but anything that you can do that is good is the equivalent of a dirty rag, Isaiah 64, 6. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. The best thing that you could do on your best day is still like a filthy rag when it comes to God because there's nothing we can do and nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. But the fact of the matter is that when you read what the Bible says without changing it to say what you want it to say, our own good works can't get us to heaven. They just can't. You can't spend enough money. You can't do enough good things. You can't attend church enough. You can't build enough hospitals to get to God. You can't. Those are great things, but they will not overcome what is separating you from God, and that's our sin. Ephesians 2, 8 says that salvation is a gift from God. So letter A, one of the reasons or one of the problems with works prior to salvation is that gifts aren't earned. 
Gifts aren't earned. You know, I, I just punched into Google to find gift. And even Google understands. It says, a thing given willingly to someone without payment, a present. Even Google gifts, or even Google understands that you can't earn a gift. It's not that hard. So why do people automatically think that I need to earn this gift of eternal life? I don't know. Maybe it's just our human nature that we need to work. I know as a man, you just, you have pride that you need to work to earn your income, and that's a great thing. But when it comes to eternal life, there's nothing you can do to earn it. You can't work hard enough. You can't do enough good things. There's only one way, and that's the problem with relying on your works prior to salvation, because they amount to nothing. It's a gift from God. You can't earn it. The nature of a gift is that it is free. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the gift that he offers to us. It's receiving reward despite deserving condemnation. God's gift to mankind, it's eternal life. Which displays his grace, because we certainly don't deserve that reward, do we not? We absolutely don't. We deserve condemnation for what we've done to him. For how we've corrupted the story that God was writing. It's, but it's a gift, and that's the nature of a gift. And if you could work to earn it, you need to understand this. If you could work to earn it, you would nullify the cross completely. Galatians 2.21 says clearly, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. There's no point. If, Christ, or if righteousness, if salvation comes by the law, which was just a system of rules given to Moses and given to the nation of Israel before Christ died on the cross, if that could save you today, it nullifies the cross of Christ. Think about this. If you're in here and you've never actually understood this whole Christianity thing, and you've just thought, well, why can't there be many religions? Why, why can't what Buddhism says also get you to heaven, Oprah Winfrey? <laughs> why not? Because listen, that was like a really old reference. I don't know why that came into my head, but anyway. It's like a really cool YouTube video of like Oprah saying there's like many roads to heaven and then like some Christian lady standing up and saying, no, there's not. You should, you should look that up. It's from like the 90s. Um, where was I? Okay, so why, think about this. If you've ever wondered why there isn't more ways to get to heaven or why you couldn't work your way to earn it, why would Christ endure the suffering of the cross if there was any other way? Why in the world would he go through that? Why would he leave his divine authority in the heavens and put on flesh and come down here only to be mocked, beaten, bruised, and hung on a tree to die? Why would he do that if there was any other way? I think logically you can understand there's no other way. And you can't debate with me that he didn't die because that's a historical fact. You can look in, in uh, non-Christian history books. You can look in secular history books and they will, well, maybe not the ones today. They might just forget about it completely. But secular historians will tell you there was a man named Jesus Christ and he died on a cross. Why would he do that if there was any other way? That's the problem with works-based salvation. There isn't, there isn't another way. You can't work there. It's only through the work of Christ that we can be saved. Another problem with works-based salvation, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, is works allow boasting. Works allow boasting. If our good works, think about it, if our good works were able to secure salvation for us, it would be of our own power, right? And, and just human nature, we would boast in how much better we are than other people. We probably do that already to some degree. <laughs> Maybe we don't say it out loud, but we do it in our heads. 
You're, you're, we're constantly looking and judging other people compared to us, or maybe we come up short because we're judging ourselves compared to other people. And if, if salvation was by our own power and our own works and what we can do to get there, that's, we would boast in ourselves. But check out Romans 3, 27. Paul says, where is boasting then? It's excluded. By what? Law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. See, faith wipes out boasting. It, the law of faith in what Christ has done for us completely wipes out any bragging rights because we're so far removed from God, we can't do anything of our own accord to get to him. It's only through faith in his grace that we're saved. And we can't brag about ourselves in that because all we did was acquiesce to that fact. We did nothing in and of ourselves to get to it other than bow our knee and say, yes, Lord, you're the supreme authority. That's all you can do. And you can't boast in ourself when it comes to salvation. But what you can do, Psalm 44, 8, in God we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Psalm 34, 2, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. 2 Corinthians eleven ten, Paul says, As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. He says, As the truth of Christ is in me, I will not stop boasting. Of who? Himself? No, of Christ. As long as the truth of Christ dwells in me, I will not stop boasting about my God and my Savior because of what he's done for me. And that's the point. That's the point. If we can't do it in and of ourselves and only God can do it, who gets the glory? God, every time, every time. If we can do it of ourselves or if we can gain salvation by praying to some guy, who gets the glory? Some guy, or we do. But salvation doesn't come by man, it comes by faith in what Christ did on Calvary. The problem with works prior to salvation is they don't get you anywhere. They don't get you anywhere. They're not bad things, but they don't get you eternal life. And if you want to look at it this way, the only work... I say that with air quotes if you're listening on recording. The only work that you can do to be saved is to trust in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. That's all you can do. That's all you can do to obtain salvation. Now, here's the thing. I, I really love verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2 because they completely destroy every other religion that has a works-based salvation, which would be 99% of them. But the problem is that most of us would agree with everything we just looked at. It's like, yeah, yeah, man, there's, there's no reason. It's just, it's just an amen fest. Awesome, not of works, but only by grace, through faith. I, I believe you. Awesome, God's, God's great. But the problem is that we don't often read verse 10, and we, we definitely don't memorize verse 10. We <laughs> memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But let's continue reading in the passage. Ephesians 2, 10 says, For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So before we get our anti-work boots on and say that there's nothing we can do now, we need to look at verse 10. Because the problem with works prior to salvation is they don't work. <laughs> That's the problem. But number three, there is a purpose to works post-salvation. There is. There, there's a point to them. There is a purpose to works post-salvation. Go back to verse 10, it says that we are Christ's workmanship, and all that means is literally we are his product. He has created us. We are a product of the creation of God unto good works. 
created in Christ Jesus unto good works. See, what I want us to do here today, if you've never noticed this before, is compare and contrast the difference between not of works and unto good works because they're within two verses of each other. It's, salvation is not of works, but once you are saved, we are created unto good works. There's a difference. Your good works can't save you, and that, that's a fact. But once you are saved, you're called to walk in good works. That's also a fact, just on the authority of what God says in his word. We can't use the fact that salvation is by grace through faith alone to just sit on our duffs after we're saved. That's, that's not the point a lot of people, I mean, we believe here that once you are saved, you are saved eternally. There's nothing that you can do to separate you from the love of God. That's Romans 8, 38, and 39. There's nothing that you can do to unearn a gift. That's just logic. God gave us eternal life, John three sixteen, everlasting life. You can't undo that. Everlasting life doesn't end because you, all, you somehow unearned a gift that you didn't earn in the first place. But what people say the problem with that theology is, well, that just gives you license to sin. No, you, if you're truly saved, you don't want to do that anymore. You will because you're living in the flesh, and that should convict you. And then you should go to God and repent of that so that you grow closer to being like him. It's not a license to sin more. It's just the Bible. The Bible just says what Christ has given, no man can take away. God has given us eternal life, and that doesn't end but we can't take this, and we can't take the fact that salvation is not of works as an excuse to not do anything once we are saved, right? If God wanted you to not do anything once you were saved, he would have raptured you the minute you were saved. But he left you on this earth with a purpose, with things to do. Salvation doesn't get you saved, but it's what you're supposed to do. Or I'm sorry, salvation does get you saved. My bad. Works don't get you saved, but they are what we're supposed to do after we're saved. He has before ordained us, verse 10, that we should walk in them, that we should walk in good works. He's appointed us. That's what ordained means. It just means appointed. He has appointed those who are saved in Christ to walk in good works. So let me ask you, without a raise of hands, how are you doing with that? <laughs> Once you are saved, we are appointed to walk in good works. So there's no use for works to gain salvation, but post-salvation, there's a purpose for works. There's multiple purposes for the works. So let's look at a few of them. Letter A, one of the reasons, one of the purposes for works post-salvation is that they prove our regeneration. They prove our regeneration. Because when we're saved, we're regenerated in Christ. We've been given new life. In James, James chapter 2 Verse 17 says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Right? Works, all they are after or post-salvation is just evidence of true regeneration. They're just evidence that, yeah, you've changed. Yeah, you've given the lordship of your life over to somebody else now. You're not the same person. Now, but we have to be careful before we go too far into this thing because the Bible's not telling us to judge other people's salvation. You could easily take that truth and say, okay, well, they don't do many good things, so they're probably not saved. You know, that's, that's not what we're called to do. You don't know if someone's saved and you're not called to. But the Bible does say, I will show thee my faith by my works. It doesn't say go judge other people's faith by their works. You worry about you, and I'll worry about me, and we should be proving our faith through the good works that we're called to walk in, that Christ told us to in Ephesians 
So the idea is simple. When you get saved, you're a new creature in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. That includes our works. That includes our actions. So when you get saved and you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and you've made God your spiritual father now rather than the God of this world, you should do different things. We, we saw that in the testimonies of before baptism. They all said, I used to do this, but now I do this. Like the blind man in the gospels, I once was blind, but now I see. I love that. It's the simplicity of the gospel. When the Pharisees came trying to uh, find something against Jesus, they asked the blind man, who is this man that healed you? He says, bro, I don't know. <laughs> all I know is I once was blind and now I can see and that guy did it. And that's all you need to know to share your faith with the world. That's all you need. That's all you need is your story. I once was blind, but now I see. And here's the guy who did it. I can show you. I don't know how it worked. You learn that later. It's all about the fact that we've been regenerated. And now we are new. We're new creatures. So our actions should naturally follow. Because here's the thing. Talk is cheap, right? You can say whatever you want. You can say, do what I say, not as I do. But our actions prove what our heart says. James 1.22, be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own self. Do you actually do what you say you believe? Because that's important. That's just, I'm not, I'm not asking you, be careful, I'm not asking you to, to doubt your salvation this morning. I'm just saying, does the claim fit the evidence in your life? Does the claim that I'm a Christian, that I'm a born-again believer, fit the evidence of your actions that are manifested in everyday life? Because they should. Yeah, we screw up. Yeah, we say dumb things. Yeah, we do dumb things because we're still in this flesh. And until the Lord gives us a new body in the rapture in 1 Corinthians 15, like it says, and we're all changed in the twinkling of an eye, we'll still have this flesh on and it's fallen. But you should make a conscious decision every morning to put your armor on, right? Ephesians 6. You should make a conscious decision every morning to yield your members as servants of righteousness rather than servants of the flesh, Romans chapter 6. It's a conscious decision that we have to make, but it's worth it because we're new creatures, right? Old things are passed away. Praise the Lord, right? I don't want that old stuff anymore. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. And my works prove that. That's all I'm saying. They are proof of our regeneration. That's one of the purposes of works post-salvation. Letter B. A second purpose of works is that they progress our relationship I said that kind of weird. They progress our relationship. Back at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walking is forward motion. If it wasn't, he would have said walk backward in them, right? That doesn't make any sense. Walking in, infers forward motion. And our walk with Christ is a movement that progresses throughout our entire life, right? We, we progress and we move forward with Christ through our entire life. But the speed at which that walk moves is based solely on how fast we want it to, right? So as you walk with Christ your entire life, you can either never grow or you can grow leaps and bounds. That's why there's people who are, much older than others, but the younger sometimes seem like they're more spiritually mature than the other because one took their walk more seriously and they progress their relationship faster. Your physical age doesn't necessarily imply your spiritual maturity, but our relationship has progressed through these good works because if you've been made new in Christ, 
you will want to do things he wants you to do, right? That makes sense. So doing things that he commands you to do, such as love God, love your neighbor, other things the Bible says, it will progress your relationship with him. So, for example, praying, reading your Bible, both are works, right? Both are good works. They're actions. They're what we do. Neither in and of themselves will save you, right? Reading the Bible in and of itself will not save you, although it is faith cometh by hearing and hearing by word of God, but there has to be faith. Just reading the Bible doesn't save you. Just praying doesn't save you. But after you're saved, after you finally trusted in the grace of God, they will make you grow. They progress your relationship. Going to church, getting baptized, communion, tithing, giving to missions, going on missions trips. Those are all great works that you should do, but none of them will save you. You need to understand. Don't walk out the door thinking that any of those good things will save you from the judgment we deserve. They won't. They're great things. They won't save you. But post-salvation, they will bring you closer to Christ's heart after you've been washed by his blood. Because, man, you start giving to missions and you start going on missions trips, you start seeing what God sees and you start to have the heart that God has for lost people. You start coming to church more. You start to have a heart for the body of Christ like Christ does. You grow closer to God through these good works post-salvation. But prior to salvation, they don't do anything for you, okay? But they will help us to grow after we've been saved. So walking infers progress. So what I want to tell you today is don't sit on a couple good works that you did years ago. Because we're not called to sit in good works, we're called to walk in them. So get up and walk around in good works, man. Do great things for people. Show them the love of Christ by your actions. It, it'll do our hearts a lot of good. Because we, my fear is that we take the, the works can't save you thing and we translate it into post-salvation and then we don't do anything after that. But we're called to show the love of Christ through our works now because we've been changed. So they progress our relationship. Letter C, they proclaim our motivation. Good works post-salvation proclaim our motivation because we're motivated by the love of Christ. Or we should be anyway. When we do good works, we share that love of Christ with other people through charity and through hospitality. So obviously, we're called to love the lost world, right? We should, because God loves those who are lost. God came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Christ came when he came the first time. So we should have a heart for the lost. We should love them and show them that Christ is different than everything else. Everything else you could put your hope in, Christ is different. Love your enemy, Christ says. But we're also called to love each other, the body of Christ in particular. Look at John 13, 34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. He's talking to his disciples. He says, this, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Loving the brothers, loving the sisters in Christ is how people know that we're the disciples of God. That's what he says. When we have division among ourselves, in contrast, how does that proclaim Christ? It doesn't. When we don't love the brothers more than anything else, when we don't love the body of Christ, it doesn't proclaim anything to the lost world. 
They look and see like in the, uh, the book of 1 Corinthians to the church of Corinth, they see brothers suing brother and going against each other and arguing and fighting. That division doesn't proclaim anything to the lost world. It's, but when we love the body of Christ and by our brotherly love for the body, that's how we show Christ to the world. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth is born of God. And knoweth God. Skip down to verse 11. Verse 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. Christ wants us to love each other and that's really important to God. But it isn't just about loving each other in word. It's about our actions. It's about our works. We love each other by showing, by expressing our love for one another. And those things happen in different ways in the Bible. Check out 1 Peter 4 in verse 8. It says, And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall, co- shall cover the multitude of sins. Study that out sometime. That's fun stuff. Verse 9. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. So he shows us charity and hospitality are ways that we can love each other. And charity is just love in action. That's all it is. It's just putting your money where your mouth is. It's just putting the works with the love that you say you have. And we should share that with the brethren, with the body of Christ. Hospitality is just entertaining guests and providing for them and just loving on them. That's what hospitality is. And that's important for every single one of us. And especially next week, man. Because here's, I really, really want to say this for us. Next week, when we start the Certainty Conference, we're going to have tons of people from out of state. Seriously, I don't know. It might be over 100 people. I don't know. We're going to have a lot of guests from, from Georgia and from Michigan and from Missouri. We're going to have, and from Kansas, all sorts of guests with us to study the Bible. And guess what? They're all brothers and sisters who believe what we believe about the Bible. We should love on those guys more than anybody else and show them the love of Christ because that's what we're called to do. So if you're housing somebody, man, make sure you give them everything they need. Don't don't neglect them. Don't only give them a pillow for their head. Man, make sure they have everything they need. Make sure that we're showing the love of Christ to the brothers and sisters that travel here and that we're housing. Man, make sure that we're doing that. And if you aren't housing someone, man, see if you can do something for people. On Sunday night, Sunday morning and through the nights, Man, see if anybody needs anything. If you see someone walking around with a confused look on their face, ask them if they need help finding the bathroom. I don't know what they need, but man, let's meet their needs because that's what we're called to do. And if you aren't housing anybody, maybe, maybe you can give them rides. You know what I mean? A lot of people are coming up just by busting up from the different churches. Maybe they need a ride to the morning sessions and you're coming to the morning sessions anyway. Maybe you can swing by and pick some people up, run a little bus route. Man, that would be awesome. We're called to love the body of Christ. And that's just one easy way that we can start doing that next week. Just by loving on our brothers and sisters from out of town. Because it's our duty as the body of Christ to love our own. Hebrews 13.1 says it really simply, let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love is when you love your brothers. And our brothers are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let that continue. We should, man, we should obviously love the lost world. We should obviously have a heart for them. But our brothers and sisters, man, we got to love the body, whether they're in here or whether they're across the country. So let's, in summary, this is the gospel. Christ died for us. 
He paid our payment of sin because there's nothing that we can do to earn it. It's by faith in God's grace alone that we can be saved. No work can save you. So let me ask you today, if you're in here, have you done that? Maybe you're in here. Maybe you're a guest. Maybe this is your first time at a church in a long time. Maybe you went to church a long time ago, but a falling out happened or something happened that made you not want to go to church anymore. And this is one of your first times back at church. Man, have, have you truly accepted the gift of eternal life that only God can provide? Because it's not your works that can save you. It's not your church attendance. It's not your tithe amount. It's only the shed blood of Christ on Calvary that saves us from our sin. And man, you can do that today. You can, you can leave this building today knowing, being sure that if you would unfortunately leave this earth tomorrow, you would have a, a home in heaven for eternity with God simply by doing what Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells you to do. By confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believing in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That's the gospel. That's how we're saved. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And if you have, if that's something you've done, I'm sure the majority of us in here know the Lord is our personal Savior. If you have, man, let's demonstrate that every day, right? Let's manifest the love of Christ for the world. We're called to let our light so shine for the world, not to put a bucket over it and cover it up and to blend in with the world. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be a peculiar people, set apart sanctified for the Lord. Let's, let's demonstrate that every day and especially next week and show the brothers, show the sisters, the body of Christ, the love, the charity, the hospitality that we have. You don't have to live in the South to have hospitality. We can do it up here in cold Northeast Ohio too. And I, I think our hospitality should be nicer since our area is so cold and bleak at times, right? I think we have to be super nice to people so they wanna come back. <laughs> So if you're saved, man, let's, let's, do, let's prove our regeneration. Let's progress in our relationship and let's proclaim our motivation through love. Because when we've truly grasped the gospel, this will just be an effortless, by, effortless byproduct of our life. It really will. Let's pray.